All right. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Anglers Happy Hour podcast. This is the official intro because I'm out of town again and uh, we're recording remotely. So uh, thanks again for tuning in. Um, let's check in with the guys. Rob, what's going on with you, man? What's new? Uh, not a whole lot. Um, basically been riding the fishing guide roller coaster, COVID roller coaster, whatever you <laughs> want to call it. What? One week I'm busy, the next week I don't, it's like I've never fished before in my life. So it's <laughs> uh, it's uh, pretty frustrating, but I've been taking advantage of the time off a little bit. Um, I either hike, mountain bike, or ride a Peloton if I don't get up early enough. Uh, so exercising a bunch, and I've uh, been using the, the wood pellet stove quite a bit, and kind of knocked it out of the park on a couple basic meals this week, which was kind of fun. So mm, What do you uh, make? Well, grilled yeah, cheese sandwiches. Yes, I did. I mean, they're probably really basic for most, you know, hardcore, uh, you know, pellet stove people, but um, or pellet grill, I should call it. Anyhow, uh, I made the baby back ribs. It was uh, fall off the bone baby back ribs, and they were phenomenal. Like, like there was not one left, and had. Uh, our son over with his girlfriend and our granddaughter was here with our daughter. So yeah, we pretty much mowed that over. And then I made another one that everyone probably laughs at, but it's the beer can chicken. Oh, what kind of beer? Uh, Arizona orange blossom. I think it was. There you go. You damn mountain biking, hipster craft brew drinking son of a gun. I mean, what would you do? Budweiser? Yeah, I was thinking Tecate. You know how my family rolls. (laughs) We'd get a can of Tecate light. Can you actually taste the difference in the different beers? Like I've heard like my, like, uh, well, Gerald, who we had on the podcast last time says he likes to use uh, Dr. Pepper. Oh yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. A lot of people use Coke or, you know, yeah. So the sugar and the, it's got to make a difference, right? Because it's evaporating into the meat of the bird. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. Right in the recipe. It said use a, a sweet beer versus like huh. a bitter beer. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you what, dude, it was the best chicken I've ever eaten in my life. No kidding. I'm not kidding. Either. Just because it, it was moist? Phenomenal. Yeah, and I cooked it real slow, and uh, it was just, it had good rub on it, so it had some good flavor. It was phenomenal, yeah. Talking about rub, so go back to the, or yeah, go ahead, Josh, sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, we're not doing video again, listener, so this is going to be another terrible episode of, of us interrupting <laughs> with each other. So Nick said, talk about the rubs, and I said, how long did it take? So just go through the process, Rob, on how you made this beer can chicken. Um, I basically did a, a recipe, and I just slowed it way down. I smoked it for like 45 minutes in the beginning, and I don't know if that really matters, um, but but it definitely worked. And instead of like they say you can cook it like in an hour, but you're, you're cooking it at 350 degrees. Instead, I just cooked it at like 225, just did it real slow. Um, at one point, the darn thing fell over in the grill, but I had it on a pan. So all the oh, beer good. was captured in the pan, but then I tilted it back up and poured more beer down its throat. So <laughs> <laughs> I just thought it was, I honestly thought it was going to be like the biggest fail ever. And it, and it wasn't. It was pretty good. So it's got to be pretty simple to do, obviously. Um, and I did a rub on it. I did um, stuff called fire salt. And then I did a, a, a poultry rub also. And I mixed those two together. So just, again, pretty basic, um, you know, but it was it turned out good. So 
probably the That's next awesome. time I do it, it won't be as good, but we'll try. We'll see. So maybe I just got lucky. But. That's one of those things that like sounds actually a little intimidating to make a whole chicken, but it sounds like it's actually pretty dang easy once you explain it. Extremely easy, and like there literally was nothing left on that carcass. We ate every little bit of it. It was it was that good. Just picked it apart. So. So that's a huge secret there, right? Like Josh, you kind of touched on it being like intimidating or a little overwhelming. Um, and we've been in the buying the whole chicken camp for a little while. The fries around us sells those like simple truth. Um, I don't know if they're organic or whatever they are. They call them all naturals, but it's a whole chicken. And uh, it's it's the way to roll. You just got to dial in a little bit more time. We use ours in the instant pot quite a yep. bit. We actually, we made pasole out of one of them this week. And uh, man, don't don't be intimidated. Just just keep just keep cooking that thing if it's uh, if it's not done. Like I used to be intimidated by chicken just because of the, you know, if it's a piece of red meat and you don't cook it enough, I prefer it that way, right? Like I like meat to be juicy and rare. Chicken's a different story, right? You got foodborne illness issues, but just keep cooking that thing until it's done, and uh, you will be rewarded. The bones and the cartilage and all that stuff it increases the flavor tenfold. I think the I think one of the biggest keys to cooking chicken on a wood pellet grill is the fact that you can you can run a temperature probe into the meat. You don't have to open the grill and when you you want it to be 165 when it's done. So I'll run it to 160 and then wrap it uh, and let it sit for a while. So. There it is. Yeah, it's low and slow, baby. Yep. Yep. Right on. Right on. Well, Gerald, our 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 buddy Gerald Sport just made a little uh a little appearance here on the uh, on the audio. He says hi, guys, or on the yeah. video. He was flashing Where are you signs. At, Josh? I thought you were home. Where? I wish I could have gone home. I just don't have very long, man. I've got only uh, I've only got four days before practice starts at the next event, so or before I have to drive there. So I just stayed back east. So I'm literally sitting on we're in a VRBO in the middle of a farm in Minnesota. Nice. It looks homely. I see a little teddy bear behind you. If you need to like console yourself later, you could just snuggle up and you know put on a movie and a little blanket. looks Looks homely. It looks like grandma's house. It it's exactly what we said when we walked in. This house is <laughs> definitely like the furniture, the carpet, everything is is from 35 years ago. But it's a, dude, awesome. it's a perfect spot. I mean, it's there's unlimited parking. We're right in the middle of all these cornfields, and uh, apparently, uh, apparently it's feed corn. Like uh, it's not sweet corn like you would eat. I guess it's feed corn, but we are in the middle of, of nowhere, and that's exactly where you want to be when you're staying somewhere for a week at a tournament. What's Gerald cooking today? Uh, let's Top see what he's pockets. made this week, dude. <laughs> yeah. He, um, what has he made? He made a roast the other day. He's, I mean, dude, he's been on fire, as always. We've had steaks a couple nights. There's a meat market down the street, you know, in, in Wisconsin, Minnesota, this part of Minnesota, like you, there's some sweet meat markets where you can get, you know, all kinds of good cuts of stuff. So we've had a couple of ribeye nights. Um, chicken thighs uh, are always a staple. Um, he made a roast. We had, uh, this is a food show for the first 10 minutes, apparently. And then brats a couple nights too. We had, you got to do uh, brats when you're in Wisconsin. They've got all kinds yeah. of like custom brats, like jalapeno cheddar brats or nice. Nick is cringing at the sound of that. But Dude, uh, can you, did I leave my video on? I'm sure my video's off. That's the least I almost spit water in my cup when you said jalapeno. Jalapeno cheese, dude. There's cheese in them too. That's where you, that's where it goes <laughs> south for Nick. 
Well, and you pronounced it authentic, so you, your pronunciation was on point, and it had cheese, so you, you lost me. I'm gone. I'm hanging out jalapeno now. or jalapeno? I don't know, but it was good either way. Jalapeno. <laughs> yeah, jalapeno. That's how it's said in Wisconsin, for sure. Oh, yeah. That's funny. Well, that's cool, Rob. Uh, glad you're tearing it up on the Traeger, dude. It, it's been so freaking hot in Arizona. You don't even need a Traeger or a Green Mountain Grill, dude. You just literally uh, – you just put the food outside, man, and, it, and it's cooked. But, uh, Nick, what uh, what's new your way, man? Well, uh, yeah, here we are not on the road, sadly. We, uh, But I want to preface this by saying at least now I know what day it is. I know it's Thursday when we're recording this. So, you know, last week I struggled with what day it was, but at least now you know I'm it's Thursday, Nick. Yeah, I'm kidding. It's Sunday. I, I do <laughs> okay. know. I'm looking at my dad's giant calendar here on his desk that I'm recording in front of. And uh, it looks like today is June uh, 7th, Sunday, June 7th. Just kidding. But uh, yeah, man, we uh, we got the, the big old Majestic 28A. It's funny, that thing, the motorhome's a model is a Majestic 28A. And it's got these big, like, cheesy graphics all over it. And in the front, it says, like, Majestic in this really cryptic font. I want to get up there with a Sharpie and write so in front of it. So it says so Majestic. But I uh, I haven't, haven't garnered up the will to do that. But I think that'd be so funny. Call it the so Majestic. You Anyways. Should, it'd, be, it'd be your own deal. Or, like, really Majestic. And then if we were going to like really spice it up, I was thinking like F-bomb majestic, but I digress. Um, <laughs> we uh, we had that thing all loaded up, man. We uh, we packed and we prepared and we tried to be as like thorough and thoughtful as we could. And uh, last week, man, we uh, uh, my wife just had noticed that our little baby was getting a pretty righteous fever. And uh, so sadly, we went to the doctor and uh, we, we haven't got test results back or anything yet. And he's doing much better, but we live in an new world of uh once you throw the flag up of illness you know you're encouraged to stay home and so uh that's what we're doing man we're just we're just riding sick camp right now but we are itching to get out on the road we're losing you there for a second nick yeah okay am i back well you're back yeah yeah sorry to hear that dude at least uh at least you're doing the responsible thing and uh that i guess that is the good thing to do but um yeah hopefully things can come around you guys can get on the road i know how pumped you were and i know how pumped your kids were man i think <laughs> and you know what i think uh probably our listeners were pumped too because the shenanigans that were about to go down and the stories <laughs> we were about to get would have been probably the best part of the podcast and now you and now we just bob dude i felt like a young walter white as i was loading that motorhome <laughs> i was just like looking for jesse pinkman like i was just ready man i was like loading beakers and tubes and stuff and it just it just felt so natural and uh here we are uh we're, we'll, we'll we'll survive like gladys knight but that was it dude has 2020 been predictable for anyone like that has been oh. the reoccurring theme you just you just you think you got a plan ha no you don't and uh it just continues man well, that's crazy. Yeah, right on so par. Josh, go Josh, ahead, Rob. Tell us, about, tell us about your tournament, lacrosse. You did well. Thanks. You know, it was uh, it looked okay on paper. You know, there were 200 votes for this FLW Super Tournament, and I ended up 32nd. So I'll take that. You know, most tournaments for sure. That was definitely a a solid finish for me. But uh, it was an absolute one of those just battle tournaments, and it was it was out of Lacrosse, Wisconsin, on the Mississippi River. And this is a great fishery. I mean, this is a place that we've been like maybe four other times. And 
the fishing has been phenomenal every time. Like you can go out and catch it 20, 30, 40 fish on a good day of fishing. Uh, but it's never hard to catch a limit. And every day this week I was just waking up in the morning with a knot in my stomach knowing like it's going to be so hard to catch a limit. And if you don't catch a limit, you're not getting paid, you know? So you just can't come in and on a place like this where the, there are a lot of fish that are the same size. There's so much parity in the fish that get brought in. If you bring in four one day, it's really hard to come back from that because you can't go catch a 20 pound bag. Like a fantastic bag this week was 13 pounds and it's just hard to make a comeback. So every day I woke up nervous about catching a limit and it would take me until like one o'clock every tournament day to, to get the fifth one. So I was thankful to survive it, get a check, uh, make the cut and move on. But I had a couple crazy things happen throughout the week that I thought you guys would get a kick out of. So uh, with the, with the, one of the reasons it was tough was the water was like really low. And I, did we talk about this in the last podcast, kind of what the game plan was with the low water river fishing? Yeah, Google earthing, doing some scouting. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it, this the water level here is normally, uh, I think on this pool, pool eight, uh, it, I think a normal level is maybe like they call it eight feet. Uh, and it was down at about six uh, throughout the course of the week. So these places that are normally three or four feet deep, they're one or two foot deep. Or a place that's normally three, now it's six inches deep. And, uh, dude, I was stuck so much in practice. Like, stuck on sandbar, stuck on this, stuck on that. Just trolling into an area, you get stuck. Running your big motor, you're hitting sandbars. And uh, there was one place that you had to run through. And it's this tree has been there for a long time. I remember this tree being there. But you're running through these sloughs to get back into an area. Um, it's a really good area to fish. It's the Goose Island area on uh, on the river is what they call it. But there's a tree that's about eight inches in diameter that's been like that's fallen over, and it comes out three quarters of the way across the slough. Uh, so you just have to stay way to the left to go around this tree. But the challenge is. There's a sandbar to the left. So, like, to not hit the tree, you have you hit the sandbar. And then the other challenge is about 20 feet, 30 feet past this tree and sandbar, you have to make a 90-degree left turn. So, as you're coming in, you know, if you're about to make a hard left turn, you would typically stay to the right to make that left turn, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you have to stay to the left to miss the tree and you're going to intentionally hit the sandbar and some with your motor trimmed up and somehow make this left turn to go around it. So I screw up the first day of practice and I don't have the balls to make that left turn after hitting the sandbar. And I kind of go up into the grass on the right and uh, didn't, you know, no, no big deal, no harm, nothing got hurt, messed up or anything. But now I'm, I, I can't get through because I'm off pad. So I had to like, I basically had to intentionally get stuck and, and idle through a bunch of sand and blow my way and push my way through a bunch of sand to get out. And yeah. I do that. And I'm like, that sucked, dude. You know, but I go in there into these areas and, and catch them back there enough to like, know I'm going to go back in the tournament. So the first morning of the tournament, we have a fog delay. We missed two hours and now I'm already stressing. Cause I'm like, dude, I don't know how the heck I'm going to catch five in eight hours. And how, how am I going to do it in six hours? And I'm running back to this area. It's like 9 o'clock, 8.30 when the tournament day starts. And I, uh, I, I'm i coming up to this 
spot that I'm going to have to navigate through. And I'm like, in my head, I go, oh, wow, someone took the tree out. That's awesome, dude. Someone cut that tree down knowing that we were going to, there were going to be guys running through here and, or maybe some angler hat did it, did it with a chainsaw or something awesome. So dude, in my stupid head, I'm thinking that, and I go to make, I'm like, okay, look how easy it is to make this left-hand turn. I make the left-hand turn and whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I'm up on it and I'm like, oh shoot, I got to power through this. It's, it's shallower than I remember it being. And I'm trying to stay I've got the motor pegged, dude, and I'm just digging deeper and deeper and deeper into the sand, and, all, oh. and we're finally stuck. <laughs> and I, I'm like, holy crap, what happened? And my Marshall's looking at me, dude, and his face is white. And uh, I'm like, <laughs> holy crap, you know, what just happened? And I, I, I realized what happened. I, I made the wrong turn. I, I turned oh. in uh, <laughs> like 50 yards too early, and I turned into just a straight up, sandbar dude like there was there was an opening into another slough but if i went back and looked afterwards on google earth and it's just all sand dude like it was and i realized that yeah i just made the wrong turn so now we haven't even made a cast and i'm stuck Uh, so how much time did that eat up dude by the time i was i was push pulling using the trolling motor using the big motor i finally had to get out of the boat and you are allowed to get out of the boat to push out of an area not to push into an area to fish so after about, you know, 20, 20, 30 minutes of fumbling around from the boat, just like zapping all my energy trying to push pull off, uh, I got out of the boat and was able to push the boat off. But then now I have to idle all the way back out because it's only it's too shallow to get on pad now. So I have to yeah. idle all the way out to deeper water, turn around and try this again. So I get all the way out and now like probably 45 minutes to an hour has passed. And we get out to some deeper water and we come in and I make the right turn, hit this, hit the, the sandbar just for a second, make the left turn and get through. And I go back and fish and I, I don't catch anything for like the first hour. So now it's like, oh. dude, it's like 1030 and I got nothing. And uh, I had an early weigh in too. I had the first, first flight weigh in. So thank God I, I scrambled and caught a limit and, uh, it's, you know, survived that day, had a little bit back, better bag the second day and moved up and moved again a, a couple more spots the last day. But that was a great way to start, dude. After getting uh, stuck like that, my hands were shaking for like when I finally got to fishing, I was shaking like I had just caught a 10 pounder. And I told my marshal, I'm like, dude, I don't, I don't know why I'm shaking so bad. I'm not like nervous now, but I guess I had just the adrenaline. So adrenaline going for that first uh, for the hour of being stuck, man. It, it sucked. What was his take on the situation? Was that was he a local guy? Was he familiar with the river, or was he just completely blown away with what was going on? Um, he was a local from different pools, so he he didn't like know that particular spot. Uh, yeah. But he understood how it could happen. You know what I mean? Gotcha. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I explained before, like how how difficult that spot was. And dude, I mean, someone listening that knows the spot might be like, "Oh, you're an idiot. You can get into that spot an easier way or something like that." But uh, helicopter, yeah, I mean, you, you don't know when you're. I mean, you're two thousand miles away from there, so it's uh, yeah. it it's funny how I would imagine locals sit back and kind of laugh at the guys, but they have to understand they fish those areas their entire life. You know, it's just a different deal when you show up and fish a body of water like that that you're not familiar with or little little not very familiar with at least yeah 
Yeah, navigation is the name of the game, man. And, and if yeah. you don't have like, if you don't have weeks to figure out how to navigate, you have to take it. You know, you either take a big risk or you play it safe and, and maybe eat up a little more time. But like I was, you know, throughout the course of the week, man, I wasn't taking any chances because like in that tournament day, if you truly get stuck beyond getting out, like you're going to lose the whole tournament just because you wanted to save an extra, you know, five minutes of not going around the safe way to get into a place or something. So I don't know. I mean, you know what, go ahead. You know, what's so funny is so me sitting back as a spectator watching, I didn't watch much of the live, but I, I watched the weigh-ins. I watched when you, um, you know, when you weighed in, I watched your social media stuff with smallmouth, and you would, you would think that you were out drop shotting in the middle of the river and then you talk about how you're running in shallow water up into these little slough areas. So talk about that a little bit. I mean, did you catch largemouth? Did you catch just smallmouth? What what did you catch? That's cool. And that's actually a pretty, le- le- really legit question, man. Something I wanted to talk about, too, because it was really weird. Like, I don't know if you guys have seen this before on fisheries when fishing is abnormal um, or it's an exceptionally tough bite, whether the water's really low or the water's really high. You might, when it comes to largemouth, smallmouth spots— I've seen in these scenarios, you'll actually catch different species in weird situations. Like with really low water, um, I've seen it where like smallmouth will sometimes appear in largemouth areas. And like in also in really high water, when it floods, a lot of times the smallmouth in spots will join the largemouth in that really heavy cover because it's they have to get into that cover to get out of whatever, you know, whatever the uh, conditions the are. Or whatever. Normally mm-hmm. live. Yeah, the current or whatever. So... Dude, I was back in an area where in the past I've caught 90% largemouth flipping, and I was catching 75% smallmouth flipping. Wow. No kidding. It was really weird, and the water was low. So, like, a big key, you know, in these little narrow sloughs and stuff is to try to find the the deeper banks, of course, you know. So, like, a lot of times it would be, like, an outside bend where, you know, whatever that creek channel would run on the outside bend, and... uh and if, if you had any type of like overhanging grass or a lay down or, or any type of cover, that's what the actual fish would be on. But um, yeah, that I was, I was expecting to go in there and catching and, and catch primarily largemouth. But the first day, dude, I flipped a three and a half pound smallie and I couldn't believe Whoa. it. It was, uh, that's awesome. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. Right after, you know, a little bit, a little bit after getting stuck that morning, that was my first fish. And I was like, Holy crap, man. Payday. That was a lucky. That was the lucky break that I needed to get back on the right track. But it was really weird to to flip that many smallmouth, and it's crazy how crazy smallmouth are compared to largemouth, dude. The way they bite it and stuff. Like so often uh, with largemouth, you flip in there and you just feel a little tick, or it just slowly swims out to deep water. But when yep. you're flipping smallmouth in that really shallow water, the bite's so different a lot of times, man. Like you'd you'd flip it in there and you would just see like a a, a cloud of dirt. You know what I mean? A cloud of dirt, and your line is just hauling to, out to the deep water, and you're like, holy crap, you set the hook, no and all of a sudden, it's just like, you know, you can hear the line, uh, <laughs> you can hear the line tighten, you know, and, and cut through the water, and then a few times, I'd, I'd like, flip in there, and it may, I, what I'm visualizing is maybe that fish was three or four feet away from where I flipped, so you flip in there, and then you're pulling the bait out, and they eat it as it's coming out of the water. Whoa. Awesome. You, They're just you guys had that happen? Yeah, not very often. Though. I don't know if I've – I haven't flipped very many smallmouth. I can, I can guarantee you that. So it's 
I'm sure it's a completely different experience, but what, talk about your rig, <clears throat> excuse me, talk about your rig a little bit. Were you flipping heavyweight, lightweight, um, heavy line? What, what'd you have going on? So uh, yeah, I, I downsized a little bit just because, because of the smallmouth factor and because fishing was so tough, instead of flipping like a, like a full size, uh, the four or five inch flipping bait with uh or a four or five inch pit boss or or a full size uh, power hog or something like that with a seven six rod and 20 pound i was using a seven three rod with 17 pound and a four inch power hog so a little bit more of a compact or i shouldn't say compact but just downsized creature bait and i really like a, a, a bait with swimming tails in the middle of the summer when it gets really hot um, I think it's really important to have that swimming action. Whereas like in the springtime, I like a pit boss or something that, or a bunker hog or a jig, even, um, something that's a little more compact and doesn't have that crazy swimming action. But in the summertime when it's hot, I think making it look like a bait fish is a really big deal. Do you guys do the same thing? Yeah, I've always, you know, Early on in the year, I used to flip like a pig and jig a lot. And then all of a sudden, once they spawn and it started getting warm, you'd go to a, a bait that had more action to it, a lizard or a brush hog or, you know, anything that had a little more swimming to it. So even even finesse fishing out here, I mean, a lot of times we'll use uh, curly tailed worms this time of year versus a straight tail worm. So it's just Good I don't know point. what it is, just a little more. A little more action this time of year definitely works. So my question then is, and it might be, again, one of those answers that is completely subjective and impossible to answer, but is it more forage related or is it more because the water temperature and the actual like activity of the fish is different, meaning like the water's cooler before the spawn and so they're just not quite ready to chase versus summertime they're warmed up? Or do you think it's more related to the profile of it being like, you know, a bait fish versus maybe like a crawfish? Do you think there's anything either side of that question? That's a good question. I think you're, yeah, my, you're right on both of those, right, Rob? I mean, it's, it's yeah, a both. I agree. Uh, I agree. I think it's, uh, I mean, I, I just feel like the water's warmer and the fish are more active, you know, they're, mm -hmm. they're moving their fins more and, you know, maybe it goes back to a uh, curly tail or something with, you know, uh, a lot more action when it's colder is too much. Maybe mm -hmm. maybe that's the deal. Unnatural too, right? Like yeah. there's just nothing because underwater. Too, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's too active. That's one thing I tell clients a lot. I'm like, you can't you can't speed it up because all of a sudden, you know, when the water's cold, you can't. Because there's can nothing underwater it. when it's cold swimming fast, right? Like yeah. that's the most unnatural so, thing ever. So you can never fish too slow is what I'm trying to get at. And, and I think you can definitely fish too fast. And I'm, you know, I'm talking like plastics on the bottom, that type of stuff. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's yeah. kind of hard to fish a buzz bait slow, right? Yeah. So, so much <laughs> of it's common sense too. Like, like, and a big thing is your weight size, your selection on weight size, especially when you're flipping, because uh, it's the same thing. Are the fish cold and inactive? If that's the case, you want to get away with the lightest weight you possibly can. But once you get into that water, the water's in the 80s and, and you're trying to make a fish react, you know, even though you, you don't need a heavy weight to penetrate whatever you're fishing, if you're fishing laydowns or whatever, a lot of times like a half ounce weight is a good call because it falls fast enough to make that fish react to it. Um, mm -hmm. 
But that same half ounce weight on a lay down in the middle of the winter time is way too much. You'd be better off using a quarter ounce weight. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, well, yeah was, it's funny. Fish is just a world of nuances, right? For sure. And it can make a big difference. And I'll tell you, I mean, I did. So the area and you can tell if you got the right if you're doing the right thing, because um, you see how you stack up against guys that fish the same area, you know, in the same tournament mm-hmm. a lot of times. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if you did the best out of all the guys around you, you know, you were doing it just right. And if you if you got your butt kicked, you were doing something wrong. I mean, and it doesn't mean it was something major. It was probably just something really minute you know, like the, the wrong weight size or, or you didn't quite figure out how the fish were positioned. But uh, in my case this week, I was like kind of right in the middle, man. Like there were several good fishermen that did not catch limits and didn't make the first cut. But what frustrates me actually the most is I was around David Walker a lot. And David Walker finished in uh, third or fourth place in the tournament. And, uh, I've finished 32nd, so I really am curious to, um, next time I see him, I'll be curious about what little difference he figured out that none of us around could do, you know what I mean? A few mm-hmm. guys were in the area, Mike McClellan was in the area, and he, he did similar to what I did. We both made that first cut, um, but didn't make that final day, but uh, David Walker did something. I'm sitting here acting like I had it figured out, but he really had it figured out. He did something uh, a lot better than all of us. And, so and I watched Go ahead, Nick. I decided to say, and obviously this is just from one specific tournament to the next. One thought I have on that is, is that, and I don't know, it probably wasn't at play in this type of a river scenario, but uh, sometimes you could be in the same area, but one person is just on a bigger school that's reloading quicker, right? That's kind of like the obvious answer oh, to that. Yeah, and if, but, but see, that's and that's the case a lot of times for but sure. Not in this specific spot, fishery, right? No, dude, in this fishery, you got guys fishing the same banks, you know, over and over and over again. And by the end of the day, there's going to be 20 guys that fished every stretch that you fished, you know what uh-huh. I mean? So you're going to have to figure out one or two. It's not so much a specific spot as a general approach and how you're <laughs> how you're targeting the fish, I think, in this scenario. But you're right on, you know, you might be 100 yards from from a guy for an entire tournament on a on a deep on a deep lake or something, and your school is just better than theirs or vice versa. Mm-hmm. But in this one, you were fishing the exact same water. Right, so it wasn't reloading quickly for him or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, it mm-hmm. would have reloaded for everyone else. Everyone, you know gotcha. I mean? Rob, you know what you were going to ask, man? Well, I just, I was going to make a, I watched a little bit of the live and I watched the gentleman by the name of Ron Nelson. You're familiar with him, right, Josh? Yep. He's an absolute hammer of a fish. Absolute hammer. Yes. And, but I just found it really interesting. Uh, the, I don't know if it was, I think it was the second day when I was watching it and he literally sat on one little grass patch. There's miles of grass. Everything around him looks all the same, right? But he's on one little Island of grass patch and throwing a frog and he I mean, he had to fish it for it seemed like two hours i mean he was Jeez. literally just sitting on that one spot making repetitive casts to the same area same area same area and all of a sudden they you know one would come up and eat it on a frog eat his frog and it was just amazing how determined he was to catch him out of that one little patch obviously Talk about confidence yeah and he just knew there was fish in there he knew there was you know he kept talking he goes there's probably five or six fish in there and i you know i want to try to catch every one of them i'm like oh my goodness how do you know that's hard to recognize how do you recognize that that's tough well he was snorkeling in practice (laughs) 
I guess my biggest thing on my biggest point of that whole deal is the fact that there was miles of the same stuff around him. And mm-hmm. he was focused on that one little, you know, it was probably the size of four or five bass boats, you know, but there was well. some type of regularity to that grass, you know, that, yeah. that, that there was a one little opening where current was able to flow through, or it wasn't quite so choked out right there. Who, who knows what it was, but he definitely found some type of regularity. It's uh, it's amazing, yeah. huh? Yeah, and it seems like also stuff I saw on live too, it seems like, like history on that river really pays. Like um, Zach Burge was talking about how he found the area that he was fishing um, last year in Red Red Crest. Yep. And, and he watched someone else that was in Red Crest also that obviously wasn't in this tournament um, or didn't fish that area. He's like, I caught him on that guy's spot this morning and I caught him huh. on the stuff I caught him on last year. So it's just, I mean history there i think goes a long long ways in a body of water like that so oh yeah yeah for for that type of stuff because yeah the the current a lot of times um you know that over year after year if the current runs the same way it's going to set fish up in the same place they're always going to end up in that same place because they're they're there because of the current you know what i mean uh and unless the sand it's a a sandbar that changed or something it's gonna they're eventually going to get there at some point that's interesting yeah. to hear. Uh, one last note I had on, uh, we were talking about the sandbars and stuff. And, uh, you know, Gerald, Gerald Spore, um, one of my roommates, he living in Louisiana that he's fished marshes and rivers his entire life. And uh, he was telling me, he goes, dude, if you ever get stuck in your bass boat on a sandbar and you got no cell phone service, you are just high and dry and you're going to spend the night on the lake if you don't figure out how to get off. He, uh, he gave me a pretty interesting uh, tip on something he did a few years ago down in Venice to get out of a spot when he was completely stuck in high and dry. And uh, what it was, he only had to go, he only had to go like 20 feet to get off this sandbar, 10 to 20 feet to get off the sandbar, but it was three inches deep. You know what I mean? Oh. He is straight stuck. And he goes, it'll take an hour to do it. But if you're, if you are completely out of luck and it's just sand, he said, you can drop your trolling motor and turn it back and forth, like get it to your trolling motor at this point is the head of the trolling motor sitting in the sand, right? It's not deployed all the way. It's not locked in. Turn it back and forth and just work it back and forth, back and forth as it digs in deeper into the sand until it can lock into its like down mm-hmm. position. And then... <laughs> You start blasting it, you, and this is yeah. Trolling, the trolling motor companies are are not going to recommend this. You're, you're voiding your warranty here, but dude, it's better than getting stuck out. I'd buy a new trolling motor for, before I get stuck out in the swamp for a night, get eaten by mosquitoes all night. Uh, yeah. So you blast the trolling motor directly forward at you know high power as long as you can, you know, and then let it cool off for a second, then do it again, then do it again, then do it again. And then after you've done it several times forward, turn it straight backwards and do the same thing over and over and over again. And eventually, dude, you're going to uh, blow out a trough. You know, it's, it's going to – he said it took him like 20 minutes, and he could inch his boat forward. He dug enough trough to inch his boat forward a few feet, and then he did it again for like 20 minutes. And eventually, oh. he dug himself a trough and got out of there and didn't have to spend the night in the Louisiana swamp. Dude, there's nothing scary in a Louisiana swamp at night. 
That's like that's a hospitable place, man. I, I've watched The Princess and the Frog a million times with my daughter. There's like glow bugs and all sorts of friendly things out there. I don't know. Yeah, I, mean, I, dude, it, I can't imagine what your troll motor would look like after that. Wouldn't have much paint on it or powder coating. I don't know if I recommend it or not, but he told me it worked. So awesome. I don't know. If I'm desperate, I would that, try it. Yeah, anything is on the table at that point. Well, if we're going to pivot away from the um, Mississippi River, one last question. I don't mean to go down a rabbit hole, but uh, how – so in the wintertime, that's that's cold weather country, and you said like eight foot is regular pool or something like that, did you say, Josh? Yeah, I think – I guess Somewhere it's eight in that foot above sea level. Is that, is that possible? Are they, that's, that's what they call it, eight foot. Anyway, so then do you think that's the – what's the depth for those fish in the winter? I mean, that's like winter country. So what do you think those fish do in the winter living in shallow water? Like, do they just get real lethargic and cold and that's that? Or like, I wonder, like, what do they do? That's a good question. Rob might know more than me. I mean, I'm, I'm an Arizona guy, you know, forever, dude. So I have no idea what these fish do in the winter. But I mean, you got to imagine they just try to get out of the current and find the deepest water possible to hold up for the winter. So there are Slivers that have slack water. There are deep lakes that have been dredged out and stuff. So, like, uh, there are some deep, you know, areas in that river where, you know, it's been dredged out to, like, 20 feet or something. And I would imagine they'd stack up in those areas, right? Because that was always fascinating to me when I lived in Wyoming, too. You know, we had such wonderful summer rivers with just, you know, epic awesome trout fishing but they were so shallow by you know late summer the runoff is practically gone and so then there were just holes that would just fill up with big fish in the winter time and you know it's so miserable well probably dude i never did um i think i think there probably are people that go and whack them the weather is just like incredibly miserable for one but if you were willing to go out there you know i think you probably could do all right i think they just get so lethargic that uh you know they're they're not living on much for calories because it's just, you know, it's 32.5 degree water or something incredible like that, right? I mean, it's the only reason it's not frozen solid is because there's just a little bit of movement. Yeah. But uh, it's amazing, right? Those fish we live, like you mentioned, Arizonans, our fish are active year round. And when you have winter like that, man, not much is happening because it's just, you know, such extreme weather. So it's it's crazy to think that those fish can just adapt and adjust like that. It's a good I point. I do know one thing that's pretty cool up there on the Mississippi is um, come come fall, right before hard winter there, those fish are chewing. They're just they, on the moat. Yeah, I mean, everybody talks about how fish will feed up for the winter. I mean, that's where that's where it's for Lit- real. Like, literally. In Arizona, doing. We, don't, we don't see that in Arizona. Yeah. You don't see that in southern states. But where, it's, where, where life's going to be tough for a few months or quite a few, you know, half the year, they're under ice. I mean, those fish have to put on the, put on the weight. And exactly what I, happens in Wyoming too. Yeah. Yeah. They absolutely go off late fall. I, um, Josh's buddy and my buddy, John steers that lives up there. I mean, he, he told me when I was there in August, he goes, fishing's terrible right now, which I didn't think it was terrible. I thought it was pretty good, but he goes, come, you know, later in the year, he goes, you'll see photos of me on Facebook with my snowmobile gear on, and, you know, he was right, man. The fish got bigger and fatter, and he was catching the heck out of them at that time of year. So pretty cool. Interesting. Yeah, the city yeah. host was telling us he's the same exact thing, Rob, what you're saying. He's like, you guys have to come back in, like, in October. October. And I'm like, yeah. 
that sounds cool. Like, how cold is it? And he goes, oh, it's not that cold. It's like, it's like 45 is a high, yeah. 30 in the morning. Yeah. So I'm like, wow, oh, dude, that sounds terrible, man. That's already yeah. too cold. Yeah, I've always left. Go ahead, Rob. Most of the folks in that part of the country are sitting in waterfowl blinds and deer stands. So the True. fish, I mean, those, those guys that are hardcore fishermen, they have the best time of year to go fishing to themselves. And yeah. So. That's a good point. That's a I good always point. always laugh in Arizona, in Phoenix especially. You know how, like, subdivisions and stuff, we've planted all those deciduous trees. And somehow they survive. I don't know how they do in the summertime, but they survive. It's always funny, man. They turn yellow and drop their leaves in, like, January. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, yeah. we finally have autumn. And it's, like, Valentine's Day. Yep. Yep, so. Well, Josh just bailed on us, Rob. Can you see that? I, I see your beautiful dashboard. Josh must have had to go to the bathroom or something because he she gone. That's funny. He's, oh, he's back. He's, he's back. You get the <laughs> Sorry, guys. I, I was hoping you just keep talking. The NASCAR race turned on and behind me, and it was it was loud, dude. That's funny. Well, it's probably more entertaining for our listeners to listen to that than us, but <laughs> for sure. Uh, right on. Well, uh, yeah, that's cool. That's that's some good river talk. Um, Let's see what else I've got. Oh, so, you said something funny. We're talking, you got some stuff on listeners, right? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, well, one of our listeners, uh, Josh Licks his name, L-I-X, uh, he sent a uh, photo of us. We were talking about uh, just the, the wildlife at the lakes. He nice. sent a photo from Lake Pleasant of a coyote with a fat gizzard shad in his mouth. The gizzard nice. shad on the bank, I guess, spawning or something. And he had like a... The coyote was just sitting there chowing down, dude. So it was a cool picture of this coyote, like, uh, you know, just running down the the uh, side of the lake with a with a eight inch gizzard shad sticking out of his mouth. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, pretty cool, pretty cool. Um, one other note, um, and I hate to just, I don't want to talk tournaments the entire time, but the winner of this tournament, his name is Tom Monsoor. The dude is seventy two years old, and. Uh, <laughs> It, it was the FLW Tour record for the oldest to win a tournament. He broke his own record. He won one when he was 68 at the Potomac River. So Whoa. what are the sports can you uh, jump into and compete against, you know, the, the the best dudes in their prime at 72 and win? Like, if, <laughs> other, other than this, I can't think of anything. You know, even golf. I don't know joke. what the oldest guy to win a. I didn't even hear you, Nick. So sorry, dude. Other than what sport? Chess. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Now he went flat. Sorry. So Monsoor is the godfather of the swim jig, right? For for sure. Yeah, that's kind of his deal. Yeah. So you, anytime you see him in the standings, you think he's out there throwing a swim jig and. I watched him a little bit on live also, and he was Carolina rigging and, and, uh, you know, pitching creature baits around and stuff. It was pretty cool to see. So, wow. You could just see his, with his, uh, just his experience watching him fish, his patience level was like yep. way beyond what yep. most of us have. Like, and of course, this is his home body of water. So he knows yep. what he's throwing at, has, you know, you just know when you're on your home lake you know when to be patient and when not to be patient but you could tell he's just a he is a patient fisherman did you hear about the the ski boat running right next to him no yeah it was it was on live again and he so he was fishing in a ski slalom area that had the little buoys and 
this ski boat just come buzzing right by him. And then they ended up having words. It was pretty funny. No way. What did he say to them, dude? He was, he, he kept it together, man. He did really, really well. Uh, he looked a little flustered afterwards, but, um, you know, the ski, the skier was like, this is a ski area. And he's like, well, I'm fishing here. And, you know, it was, it was very, he did, he was very well done on his part. He didn't lose his, you know, he didn't go crazy. I feel like in, in that situation, I would have went nuts. But what would you have said? Well. You don't want to know. Bob would have freaked out. They would have went by playing Nickelback, and he would have said the gangsters are out again. Yeah. We, yeah. We're pretty, uh, yeah, we're pretty callous to those guys living in Arizona. They're they're on the lakes all Dude, all the time. Another little silly thing I saw from that too, and it just popped in my head, and uh, I'm gonna get. I should know this, but I'm having a brain fart. I didn't realize it, who it was, but uh, um, tournaments have minimum horsepower rating on engines, huh? I never knew that. Well, apparently a lot of us didn't know, but yeah, one of the anglers in the tournament, um, he fished the event out of an aluminum boat with a 90 horsepower engine and was later disqualified because the minimum horsepower is 150. So That's crazy. I mean, yeah, it's a... Uh, it's it's it is kind of I don't know I mean it, I I get the purpose like I get the purpose of having that rule they don't want people you know jumping in an event on a place that they know and taking a boat that can get into an area where no one else can access and have okay. have an advantage that way just because you had an aluminum boat or something uh you know usually these tours make you fish the whole season out of the same boat. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, anyways, it was, you know, it was, it was an unfortunate deal. He didn't do it on purpose. He should have, should have known the rules, dude. I mean, I know, I, I hate to say it, but I know if I'm going to sign up for a tournament and fish it out of a different boat than normal, I would read those rules thoroughly about what boats you're allowed to compete out of to make sure it's legal before I tow this thing to Wisconsin and fish a tournament out of it. So it's, yeah. you know, it is what it is. And it was a bummer for everyone, but, um, yeah, you it's know, just crazy. I never, I would have never known that, but you explained it. It does make sense. I could see how that maybe creates an advantage in certain certain scenarios. So safety too. Yeah. So would it would it been a, a huge advantage there? I mean, we talked about the shallow water. I mean, would it played a lot better than a big boat or not? Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, for it could have. And and he yeah. he's a good angler. He mentioned like he ended up fishing. He ultimately fished areas that he could have fished out of his big boat just how it worked out what he found but uh yeah for sure i mean it's dude it's amazing how big and bulky a 21 foot fiberglass bass boat will get and you know this but like when you get into these shallow really tight areas you know it's a it's hard to turn it around it's heavy it's big and it's 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 amazing in 99 percent of the scenarios you bass fish out of but a 17 foot aluminum gets around a lot better that's in, in the shallow areas for sure Many big tournaments have been won, like on the Red River and that, you know, down in Louisiana and Little Boats. And I think that's part of the rule change from what I understand. So, yeah, yeah. I get it. But, uh, you know, it was a bummer that happened for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's terrible. Dude, here's a silly one, too. Uh, a buddy sent this to me literally right before we recorded. I had a little bit of writer's block uh, just trying to write down topics for today as we don't have a guest until next week. And um, there, he sent an article from the New York Post from a lady. Um, let me just get this article. I want to read it. This is the language they use in this article is is pretty funny. Dude, the New York Post always delivers. When you read oh, yeah. an article from that, it's going to be good. 
Yeah, when it's fishing related, for sure. Woman gets pulled underwater, bitten by musky in, in <laughs> Ontario Lake. <laughs> it reads, not even the lakes are safe this summer. There it is. While shark sightings have been ratcheted up this summer and a New York City fashion executive was killed off the coast of Maine by a great white shark, many people have turned to lakes. But one woman in Canada found out the hard way there are even predators in the lakes. Kim Driver was standing chest deep on the beach at North Star Village along the Winnipeg River in Minaki, Ontario, when she was attacked by a muscalunge fish, commonly known as a muskie, which have heads resembling alligators and can grow up to six feet long and weigh over 50 pounds. All of a sudden, she just said, someone's got my leg and started screaming. Her arms went up. She went underwater and kind of stood there in complete disbelief and didn't know what was going on, Kim's husband Terry told Vice. Kim suffered extensive damage on her right leg and was taken to the hospital. It completely engulfed her calf and pretty much knee to ankle, Terry told the news outlet. No one's ever seen a T-bone. Nobody's ever seen a musky T-bone someone's calf. A A recovering Kim told Vice that the attack left her in total disbelief and horrible pain, recalling... I looked down and saw the fish's head, which looked like an alligator, and it just grabbed it and moved me from side to side, then pulled me underwater. Meanwhile, Terry is out for revenge. The couple plan on visiting the lake this weekend, and while Kim says she will stay out of the water, Terry might throw a couple of musky lures in that particular area to try to get a little payback. The best That's part of the article right there. Best by far, because can you imagine that in a Canadian accent? How go out there and get revenge <laughs> oh it's hilarious it dude makes it and the fact that they wove that in at the finish perfect oh so yeah hopefully, yeah. hopefully they're listening that they caught it hilarious article dude hilarious if yeah. you guys ever had your uh have you ever uh been swimming and gotten nipped by bluegill dude yeah, my wife really. so when i first my wife and i first started hanging out i had a little copper um nitro z6 like an 11 foot fiberglass bass boat but i thought i was big, <laughs> big time and, and uh it was towards the end of her wanting to go i had just burned that bridge and she was not enjoying the early morning fishing trip so she was trying to figure out how to make it work so she would sit in it like an inflatable inner tube and i would tie a rope to it and as i was like going down the bank i just tow her along behind it dude she was asleep one time and uh, a, a mallard like a duck came up and bitter toe. No way. (laughs) I I just thought it was like a piece of like Wonder Bread floating in the air and it just went up there and got it. And uh, my kids and I, we still laugh to this day about that. that Oh, you saw it happen? I just heard the reaction and the duck swimming away. I wish I could have saw it, but uh, (laughs) we've got a lot of mileage out of that one. (laughs) That's wonderful, dude. I will tell you, we did not go back later that week with a duck line and seek revenge. So we, we have a lot to learn from our partners and friends up north. On yeah, they how know to how to get revenge. <laughs> oh man, what about you? Have you ever have you been nipped by a bluegill or anything? No, no, man. Uh, Even when you're skinny dipping. <laughs> no, they had the article or the picture in this article of the lady's calf, and it was it was torn up, dude. It, I've, I've caught. Uh, we talked about it before, but I've caught uh, on Lake Saint Clair. I've been reeling in smallmouth and had muskie eat the smallmouth. They are uh, they are pretty gnarly, man. They, I, I'm, 
I don't think I've actually ever landed a muskie in the boat. I've hooked several. Um, dude, I've, I've, believe it or not, I've hooked a couple of them drop shotting on St. Clair. The lake is loaded with them. Have you guys ever caught one before? I've caught them on Lake St. Clair with a spinnerbait fishing for smallmouth. It's the only place I've ever caught them. They weren't very big, but I got on, it seemed like a school of them and caught, I don't know, I think four of them in almost four casts. So right on. But they uh, they were not the big giant muskies that people go after. They were, you know, probably two, two and a half foot long. And the last cast I threw a Zara Spook out there and one came up and ate it and cut my line. So I'm like, okay, I'm done with these guys. <laughs> gone. But that's interesting. Yeah, they were packed up like that. Yeah, it was weird. I just think it was just a small I think it was because they were smaller ones and you know, but they were definitely muskies. So I think St. Clair's absolutely full of them, isn't it? It is, dude. It's crazy. Yeah, I remember that. That the um, I was. It was like the end of a tournament, dude. I needed another fish, and then that thing got a hold of, uh, <laughs> like almost a, probably a three pounder, dude. And uh, I got this fish. It finally let go, and I got in the boat. And it had little slits down it, down the whole body, dude. But no Kirch had one. Uh, ate a little. Uh, he ate, ate a little rock. Uh, rock bass. And uh, it flattened that rock bass like a little pancake, dude. I think was, he, he let the rock bass go, and it just spiraled down to the bottom and died. You know, but they're bad fish, dude. I wouldn't want one on my calf. We laugh at this story, but that's no, I crazy. know it's got to be it's got to be terrible. But, so you mentioning you mentioning a uh, muskie eating a drop shot, I, I just made me think of a interesting thing. Of, uh, good buddy of mine and a guy that listens to the podcast quite often is uh his name's jim cook he filleted a handful of stripers from pleasant the other day and he said a bunch of every single one of them had at least one uh crawdad in it whoa interesting we just keep thinking stripers are only eating you know shad and they're down there mowing down the crawdad too so they're like the most efficient predator like stripers you can just feel their saltwater dna they are just yep. killing machines, man. They do, they'll just eat it. They don't care. Yeah, boy, that's crazy. I don't have to do Western Lakes. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. And you'll catch those stripers down deep too. Like they'll do. They'll feed on the surface. That's the other crazy thing. They'll feed on the surface, and then you can catch them at 80 feet of water. They uh, feed at all depths. But you yeah. just don't catch it. You don't catch them on a jig very often, or a you know a worm or any True. That type of stuff. You, you just don't catch them like that very often. I know it happens, just not very common. Though. Yeah, they don't really have. I, you know, and this is stupid and a poorly thought out comment because that's my style. But you look at like their face and their mouth shape. They just don't really. They're not positioned to eat off the bottom very well, right? You know what I mean? Like they just kind of have like a narrow. Point. They're they're trying to chase stuff down with speed, but. And again, I guess when you've just got a killer's DNA and you see it, you're going to figure it out, I guess. Oh, yeah. My, my thought would be desperation, dude. Like when they start eating crawfish, like at Lake Mead, the skinny stripers, like I, they dude, probably no go to the bottom and eat crawfish out of desperation. But in a pleasant doesn't seem like it's void of bait fish right now. There's plenty of bait. That's just a, a gluttonous striper that's eating crawfish. Yeah, yeah just an opportunity they're not going to pass up, I guess. Yeah, Dude, and that is unrelated cool. to, I know we're wrapping this up and I, uh, just thinking about, I've never caught a muskie and I would love to, I think it would be like definitely a bucket list fish, but, uh, just when you've hooked something and something else eats it, I, uh, I had that exact, I had worked my butt off trying to catch a tarpon on a fly and dude, I finally caught, I finally hooked like a 
40 pound juvenile tarpon and it had done like a couple of those classic jumps and it was with our mutual friend ray and uh dude he starts telling me he's like snap it off snap it off like palm the palm the reel and snap it off and i was like screw you man like i want to catch this thing like i have finally <laughs> one of these bastards like there's no way i'm snapping him off and in like three tenths of a second later dude you could just see this v zooming towards it and a freaking lemon shark ate my tarpon boom no oh. no problem freaking scarfed it boom it's gone oh. i just had a head of a 40 pound fish dude <laughs> so, that's so you reeled in its head uh, yeah exactly i just got i just got a bloody head that's terrible that's dude. why he was yelling at you to snap it off yeah so that it could get away right like he saw that okay yeah 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 he was up on the pulling platform had a little better vantage plus i'm an idiot newbie he had no idea what was going on but it's not uncommon at all, dude. Fish over 100 pounds, tarpon over 100 pounds get mowed down by hammerheads once they get that big. And uh, there was a spot there. It's it's called the Marquesas. And it is like the coolest place ever, man. I want some of my ashes sprinkled there. But I tell you what, there there is big, scary everything out there. And uh, um, I, we saw uh, like wolf packs of bull sharks a few times out there, you know, seven, eight footers in a group of five or ten of them. And they're just, just like the schoolyard bullies, dude. They'll eat anything. <laughs> they don't how even cool care. would that be to see, dude? That's awesome. Dude, and you don't realize how much blood is in a 150-pound fish. Like it is like it just it looks like a murder scene when when it happens. And it's it's crazy, man. And, you know those hammerheads. I don't think are as dangerous to people. Like you don't hear about them eating people as much. But they are. They eat tarpon like Snicker bars and like big tarpon. <laughs> That's interesting. That is cool. What what a different scene from what we're used to in freshwater, man. Yeah, the ocean is is crazy, but I mean, it's just all it's all good, man. There's it, there's still something cool and awe inspiring of a muskie flattening a rock perched into a pancake. Like you know, there's just something cool about you know apex predators doing apex predator things. No question on that, and they are, dude. I don't think in a freshwater lake there's anything that is on top of a muskie. I think that thing is the uh, king of wherever it's going to live. Right, man. It's the flathead of the north. No doubt. No doubt. Well, cool. Um, You guys have anything else before we wrap this up? Where are you fishing this week, Josh? I've got a few days off, and then I'm headed over to Lake Erie. So we had all the smallmouth talk last weekend. I'm just going to go do more of that. You know, I've got a busy couple days just – doing sponsor stuff and then getting everything unrivered un mississippi rivered and ready to go back on a big lake again so um what does how does erie fish out of sandusky does it uh is it similar to sturgeon bay uh st Clair? what's it like yes same tactics man this is going to be a weird one though because we can't cross into canada with the border restrictions from covid again covid messing stuff up dude but you go a lot of the best water is in Canada. So you're going to see guys running, I'm not exaggerating, 50, 60, 70 miles to get to good water. And that is a long way on the Great Lakes, dude. So it's going to be yeah, uh, a very interesting tournament, and it's going to be a challenge of who's got the who's got the biggest balls to do something like that or yeah. or who's the smartest and doesn't do that and can make it happen without having to do that. So I don't know, man, I've got a lot of thinking and planning to do to figure out where I'm going to fish and how I'm going to attack it. Of course, I have to watch the weather, but uh, it's going to be a weird one, man. So I'm looking forward to it. There's some giant smallmouth in there and 
I can probably go drop shot all week, but I've got to I've got to make some big decisions on how I'm going to do it. But nice. right well, well, good luck and be safe, man. Yeah, thank you guys very much. Thanks again for uh, chatting. Thanks to the listeners as always. And uh, we do have a really good uh, interview lined up for next week. I think uh, everyone's going to enjoy it. Um, so uh, we will uh, we will talk to you all then. Thanks again, guys.